Hi, Gerald. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I want to start off with uh, uh, what did you make of the first? Uh, what did you make of the initial response uh, once the WHO, uh, you know, labeled coronavirus as pand- uh, as a pandemic? What did you make of the initial response um, of countries in ge- uh, general, but also maybe the United States uh, in particular? Because I'm, I'm I'm guessing you're more familiar with the US uh, response than uh, so. Uh, yeah, actually, um, I had, you know, in studying the pharmaceutical industry for the past few years for my book, I had uh, become aware of the fact that there was an international organization, uh, the Coalition for Pandemics and, and Epidemics out of Norway, that involved European countries, South Asian countries, African countries, and the United States in a coalition to prepare for the next pandemic. So they had agreed for an international response. And the response, Brian, was supposed to be that once there was a pandemic, they would get pharmaceutical companies who were part of this to work together to develop a vaccine, and nobody would own the intellectual property rights. So instead of somebody having a patent on it and being able to charge a price and make a large profit, they would have to share all the research in all the drug companies around the world, from German to Italian to British to American to Indian, would go ahead and develop the vaccine with the the same research. Once the coronavirus took place, everybody forgot about that. And CEPI, as it's called, had no power. I wrote an, ar- an article about it in the New York Times in, in early March of uh, 2020, right before the pandemic started to really take hold. And the response in the United States was one of the ones that set the wrong tone. And what I mean by that is in, in March of 2020, as the pandemic was starting to, to pick up speed, The United States Congress, Trump was president, but the Democrats, the other political party, had control of the House of Representatives. So both parties had to agree on what they would do. They agreed to give $8 billion. That was the first amount of money. $3 billion went to pharmaceutical companies. It went to Moderna. It went to other companies to develop a vaccine. In the first draft of the bill, there was two clauses that they could control the price level set by the drug companies, so it wouldn't be too high and they all had to share the research. One week later, when the $8 billion went out, both of those clauses were taken out. The drug company in America has tremendous lobbying power on both political powers, uh, parties. And so as a result, we are left in a situation today when companies like Pfizer and Moderna are making billions of dollars in profits. The drugs are the most profitable in terms of gross margins in the history of the drug company. And yet many developing countries still have problems getting the vaccine because boosters are being given out in the developed world. So I think that the vaccine rollout, the way that it was done, has pretty much been, it's effective in getting the vaccines into arms of Western Europeans, Americans, and those in the developed world, but it's been a disaster in terms of equal distribution throughout the world. Uh, I wanna talk a little bit about the organization that you mentioned, the Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness uh, Innovation. Um, Can you maybe, uh, you you touched upon this, can you t- tell us a little bit about why it was formed and how do you judge the success of that organization? Um... It, it, it's 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 idea the the original setup of it, it. You know, it only came. It's a relatively new organization. It was formed after two thousand fourteen, two thousand fifteen, when there had been the scare over the possibility of a virus that was going to spread. They were worried that it could be a pandemic. And look, they're not just looking at coronavirus. They're obviously concerned about all types of viruses. They would be worried about. Um, HIV, for instance, um, if it was spreading at a faster rate around the world, they would be worried not just about novel viruses, but bacterial pathogens that could become viruses uh, or could become pandemics. I had great hopes for CEPI. I really thought 
that it would be the international organization in which everyone would get together and cooperate, because that's really what you need when it's a pandemic. Look, a pandemic doesn't care if you're wealthy and you have a billion dollars net worth, or if you're earning $1 a day and you're in destitute uh, poverty. It doesn't care if you have American citizenship or British citizenship or Pakistani citizenship. A pandemic, a virus is an equal opportunity infector of everyone. So you really need international cooperation. That's what SIPI had really promised. The difficulty was that the drug companies who were part of it resisted from the beginning the bylaws and the nature of the language of the organization that said, by the way, you're going to have to share all of your information. They never really were on board. And when the time came for SEPI to have the power to do that, it was unable to do it. And, that, and that's really unfortunate. So it's, it's a promise of a great organization, but without any teeth. And I think that the, if anything, the coronavirus, COVID-19, has shown that it's this toothless giant. And that's, and that's really unfortunate. Um, I think, um, let's continue this, uh, let's continue this thread. So, um, uh, I, so do you see any hope in the future for any organization, uh, like, uh, SEPI or, uh, since you have seen what, uh, what has happened to SEPI and, you know, the kind of, uh, direction that it uh, ended up taking, uh, do you see any future uh, for an organization where, you know, um, um, they, there might be patent free, uh, medical research or medical, um, uh, uh, discoveries that are being done where they can be productionized in a in a patent-free way. Uh, do you see that, or is that? Or do you think that's non-feasible, at least in a, for a couple of decades, maybe centuries? No, I do think it's possible. Uh, the it needs the support of you know governments across, especially in the industrial world, in in Europe and in the United States and in Canada and and, and countries like India and China that have large pharmaceutical companies. It needs their absolute commitment. The problem is that in in theory, you and me, we could sit down and we could devise the correct bylaws for an organization like SEPI to go forward and to look as though on paper, it really is going to be effective. And then what happens is you get something that we're unaccustomed for, we haven't had in decades, like a new virus, a novel virus to which nobody has a natural immunity. So COVID-19 takes place and fear sets in. And once fear starts to set in, national governments respond as national governments. So uh, uh, American presidents and political leaders want to get vaccines or, or therapeutic treatments into for Americans because they're worried about the response there. And in the UK, they're worried about the same and the same in France. There was a moment, as a matter of fact, in the very beginning, many people may forget this, in which some of the money that was given out by American taxpayers uh, went to Sanofi, which is a French pharmaceutical company, but it was thought that they might be one of those capable in the very beginning of coming up with a vaccine. Sanofi had had announced in the summer of 2020, a couple of months into the heart of the pandemic, that it would distribute its first lot of vaccines if it made them to the United States since the United States had funded the research. The French President Macron was so incensed that he actually called the CEO of Sanofi to the French palace, the LSA palace, had a meeting with him. And after the meeting, the French pre the the CEO of Sanofi said, well, I meant that we will distribute it to the Americans and the French at the same time. So what happens is national interests get involved. You know, Germany was complaining about the fact that Pfizer's partner, BioNTech, was a German company and that more vaccines were not going to Germany. They weren't complaining about the fact that not enough vaccines were going to South Asia. They were complaining about that not enough vaccines were coming to Germany. So that's the difficulty. We, just, we, we form the organization. It looks as though it's good. 
But if you get governments that then fall into the panic of trying to worry about their own citizens first, it destroys the credibility of any such organization. Uh, I want to get into uh, the response. Um, just uh, maybe just on the response in the sense, um, uh, leaving the uh, if isolating, let's say, uh, uh, you know, let me let me not. Uh, so I want to get into the uh, uh, the response of the ph- pharmaceutical companies. We, we are a few years into the into the pandemic. Uh, just looking at uh, you know uh, the R and D that uh, uh, the R and D that they have done, uh, and you know, can you talk a little bit about uh, how did how did you think about the response that the pharmaceutical uh, companies uh, did? Uh, you know, once the uh, on, in the advent of uh, coronavirus. Uh, COVID-19, I mean, the kind of, did they, did they step up to that challenge? Yes, I, I think, so there's no question in my mind that the pharmaceutical companies met the challenge of having to respond very quickly to a pandemic, a new virus. And what I mean by that when I say respond, um, that is develop a, a vaccine at really a record pace. You know, when, to a lay person, saying that a vaccine will be developed in a year may not seem very fast. In the pharmaceutical companies, it's like saying that somebody is running a one-minute mile instead of a four-minute mile. It's extraordinary. Vaccines take years and years and years. As a matter of fact, we still don't have a vaccine for HIV, although they've tried for decades, and it's been around since the you know 1979, 1980. We only had a vaccine approved in the United States by the Food and Drug Administration on Ebola in 2019 for a disease that had been, you know, they had been trying since the 70s. So they can prove very difficult. With with COVID-19, they had already what I call a a start so that they weren't picking up from zero. The start had been H1N1, which had been a related coronavirus in 2009-2010. The Obama administration at the time in America and other governments had started to fund vaccine research for an RDNA vaccine to fight that. And then that vaccine did something very interesting in 2011. It did what what, what viruses sometimes do. It mutated, but mutated to a much less contagious and much less dangerous version. And as a result, everybody stopped looking for the vaccine because it was no longer commercially viable. It wasn't necessary. But when they picked up the research for COVID-19, they picked up really from that early research and they were able to modify it and do it. That was excellent. What is interesting here is you come back to the basic question in some ways to me of who should be paying for that that research. So Pfizer is the only drug company that didn't take any government funding to its credit, but every other company did. When penicillin was made in World War II, you know, the British had discovered it. They brought it over to the United States. The U.S. government made it part of a secret wartime project right behind the, the development of the atomic bomb. And so they, they put hundreds of millions of dollars into it. They built out the fermentation plants for the pharmaceutical companies. They had 10 pharmaceutical companies get involved, but nobody owned the rights to penicillin. It was shared research. They put out penicillin that saved lives around the globe. And then those companies, were able to use the research that they had done on penicillin to develop their own separate antibiotics like streptomycin and others, to which they got patents, and they made a lot of money in the 1950s. So if here we had said, by the way, we're giving you billions of dollars, use it for your research and development, come up with therapeutics or come up with vaccines, you won't own the rights to these, the prices are going to be very cheap so we can get it distributed everywhere. However, you will be able to use the benefits of that research and development for creating other RDNA drugs, and you'll be able to get patents on those and make a lot of money. 
that would have seemed a fair deal for me, but nobody was willing to do that. So I think the pharmaceutical companies get an A for having done the vaccines that appear to be quite safe and effective and for therapeutics that appear to be good on a very fast timescale. I don't give them high marks in terms of uh, pricing. Uh, let's stay on pricing. Uh, let's keep uh, coming up. So, on the profitability, if I understand you correctly, uh, if I understand your, if I understand you correctly, you, uh, you're arguing. I think, um, if the government is funding the research, then uh, you don't want. I mean, it. You you think that it should be distributed uh, for free. I mean, for free or low cost. Uh, is that is is that is that fair? Yes, or put it this way, if not free, I mean, so it's being distributed free now because nobody pays for a vaccine when they go to get one anywhere in the world, but the government's paying for it, right? So so people don't feel the cost of the vaccine. You know, nobody, for instance, who's walking in to get a vaccine in any country is having to pay $10 or 20 pounds or 20 euros or whatever else. So there is no complaint from the public because essentially the governments are paying for them. We funded the research. Now we're paying for the vaccines themselves. And so therefore, to the public, there's little outcry about it being wrong. And I would think that if nothing else, if you weren't able to share the research, at the very least, you should have some control on pricing. But, you know, we haven't been willing to do that. Uh, and it's, it's, people don't seem to be very excited about it. I'm told time and time again, as a matter of fact, by, uh, by public health officials, they say to me, don't focus so much on the profits. We just want to end COVID. We want to be able to stop it. We, uh, even if it becomes an endemic problem, we want to be able to treat it. I understand all of that, but I'm not sure why as a society we cannot do both at the same time. Why we can't encourage pharmaceutical companies to have innovation, research and development, subsidize them with public money and get them to develop groundbreaking drugs that are going to help us at this critical time. And at the same time, ask them to do something. What I mean by that, Ryan, is everybody is is suffering to some extent because of COVID-19. Uh, hospitality industry, travel industry, others um, were, were devastated for a while. People lost millions of jobs in different industries. Um, there were schools that closed up where learning had to be remote and students weren't there. Uh, th there are people who are impacted in terms of their lives for sickness and that. The public has paid a price. So why shouldn't maybe the pharmaceutical companies do their contribution? Their contribution in this case would be taking a little bit less money for the bottom line. It's not, I'm a capitalist, so I believe in capitalism and I understand that the way we have pharmaceutical company structured is a capitalist business and that's fine. I believe that they are entitled to earn a fair profit, but I also think that at a time of worldwide panic, when something like COVID-19 is there, there's a question of social wane of the policies and very few political leaders have been willing to do that because they don't want to seem as though they are stopping their own citizens from getting the latest and greatest treatments. Um, I'll just follow up with this once and then maybe we can move on. Um, <clears throat> so the general perception seems to be, and I think even, uh, you know, I think you also made uh, partly this argument that um, that the pharma companies should probably understand this, uh, should understand the situation, should understand, you know, the suffering that we are in and should probably, uh, uh, you know, uh, take a hit to the bottom line, but also uh, take a hit to the bottom line uh, and, you know, uh, contribute to the society. But uh, isn't it unfair from the society, from people to expect them to do that? I mean, uh, you know, they set up their corporation. Uh, they, you know, even if uh, even if the even if the uh, funding was done by the government and, you know, some as you mentioned, some 
companies did not take the funding from government like Pfizer. Uh, even if, uh, you know, government did fund or subsidize the research of COVID, they did invest, uh, you know, they did invest in the initial infrastructure, uh, you know, setting up uh, labs, you know, hiring the right people, uh, getting everything else done. You know, they had everything else done. And only then did the government, you know, step in and say, we'll subsidize the research for you. But before that, they did, you know, did a lot of investment uh, in, in setting up a lot of things. Uh, so for that, uh, isn't it unfair from people? Uh, isn't it unfair that people are, uh, you know, are asking them, uh, uh, it's too too bad, but we want it for free. Uh, yeah, no, you you raise a very good point. Look, and I understand that it's a balancing situation. Uh, there's no doubt about that, and I think it's too simplistic when people come down and say, okay, they shouldn't make any profit at all. This is public service; they should have to do it for free. And on the other hand, um, say, no, they should be able to charge whatever they want, whatever the market will bear. I think that what happens in this case is, and it's it's a perfect example of it, if you don't take government funding at all, you're able to charge whatever the market will bear. That's Pfizer, okay? So they're in that situation without any doubt. People often talk about, and the pharmaceutical company likes to say, pharmaceutical companies like to say, we need the the money that we charge for drugs because of research and development. And there's no question that research and development, especially in the United States with the Food and Drug Administration, is extensive. It takes billions of dollars sometimes to bring a drug to, uh, to market. And there's great risk because sometimes a drug will not get approved. I understand all of that. What's fascinating is that if you take the top 10 drug companies in the world, they're all public companies, so we know their financial figures, they spend more on on share buybacks and promotion, what I call media and promotion and share buybacks, than they do on research and development. So what's interesting is if they cut a little bit back on the stock buybacks to boost the stock price and a little bit less on advertising, they could put more into research and development without raising prices. There's one last element to this. Pharmaceutical companies are about as close as you can come to an industry that has an effective five-year plan. What I mean by that, you know, the Soviet Union used to have five-year plans, but they were never very effective because by the third or fourth year, it was always different economic situations than what they had thought when they were planning into the Politburo. The reason drug companies are pretty good at knowing what their revenues are going to look like is because drugs take so long to get approved in different countries. So they know if they have a diabetes drug or a cholesterol drug or a drug for a congestive heart disease that's in the works, that they will probably be two or two and a half years before its approval. They think it will catch this much of the market. They have an idea for pricing. They have a fairly good idea of what their revenue is going to look like over a period of time. Very seldom does an opportunity like COVID-19 come up, which opens up a new revenue stream that had been unexpected. So Pfizer, Moderna, and other companies in 2019 didn't have a, a line of revenue for COVID-19 products because COVID didn't exist. Now suddenly COVID exists and it's an opportunity for those companies that can make therapeutics or vaccines. So for instance, for Pfizer, for the last year in 2021, it's revenue, not its profits because we haven't seen the net for the last quarter, but its revenue from COVID vaccines was $36 billion. That's an astonishing figure, even for a company Pfizer size. It's the largest drug sales in a single year ever for a single drug, Umera had been the, the uh, uh, which was for rheumatoid arthritis, the record beat holder before with $19 billion. So this is a line of revenue that the companies hadn't even expected. So in that sense, what I'm saying is they should have a little bit more flexibility possibly on it because it's so new. And it's a, in, in some ways, I don't mean to say, 
COVID-19 is a gift to them. That's not what I'm saying, but it's a, it's a business opportunity that they didn't expect. Um, I want to close with a few, I want to close with a few random threads. Um, so first of all, and feel free to skip this one, uh, is, uh, uh, how do you judge the role of, uh, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, in the role, in the, you know, in the unfolding of the pandemic, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I've always, I'd always thought from a distance, and I don't write about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in my book on the, the drug industry. They just weren't part of the focus. So I didn't spend a lot of time researching them. I'd seen the, the efforts that they had done for malaria and the money that they'd given for HIV that had gone off and for funding in, in many developed countries for projects. Then they became part of the political discussion that suddenly happened as COVID-19 came out because there were very, very strong backers of vaccines. And you would think that would not be a controversial position the, because you would expect from a distance, if you had a novel virus that turned into a pandemic in which people were dying and there was fear about that and there were shutdowns from government shutdowns, that people would be yearning for a vaccine and they would be supportive. No problem. So there was a... No, no problem. There was unexpectedly, I think, a conspiracy view that somehow the Bill and Melinda Gates must be backing vaccines because they were making money from vaccines somehow secretly. I never saw any credible evidence of that. But they have become, I think, and the more that Bill Gates came out and urged people to go ahead and get vaccines, the more he became a target. I've seen some of the wildest theories about him on Twitter and social media and on, on different uh, YouTube videos and that. And suddenly Bill Gates went from somebody who was just viewed as this sort of nerdy software billionaire who was funding all these research projects now into part of the, you know, the, the secret operation to, to get the world uh, uh, somehow chipped. Um, so uh, I, I watch it, uh, you know, just amazed at times at how the uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, news and I put news sometimes in quotes has developed worldwide. Um, I think uh, you touched upon this earlier as well, but uh, I just wanted your general thoughts on. Uh, uh, are you surprised that even forty years, uh, even I think I, I read this on your I think I think you only had mentioned this in one of your articles. Are you, uh, are you surprised that even after forty years we still don't have a vaccine for AIDS or I don't know. Yeah, you know, I am surprised that after 40 years, we don't have a vaccine for AIDS. Um, two things on that. First of all, I do believe that the companies who have been trying to develop one, and Moderna had looked at it for a while and spent a considerable time, they didn't do it just to fail. They wanted to come up with it because they knew there's a real strong market for it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, there, there, um, there are drugs that are used for prophylaxis purposes that reduce the possibility of transmission of HIV virus and sexual contact. Those drugs have become very, very popular as medications. So certainly a vaccine would be a, a widely used, millions and millions of doses. Certainly not as big a market as COVID-19, which affects everybody. Doesn't matter if you have risky sexual behavior or not. You could be a child in, in a room with an airborne respiratory illness like COVID-19. And if it happens to be a very contagious and transmissible version, you're going to get sick. So the I, the market certainly for a worldwide virus is bigger, but there there's a large profitable market for a an HIV, the first HIV vaccine. And there are a number that have failed in early clinical trials. It goes to show me how complex at times mastering a vaccine for a virus can be because 
the HIV virus sheds and mutates very, very rapidly. The COVID-19 virus sheds and mutates, but not in a way so far that is drastically different where it has totally foiled the existing vaccines. We may see that happen, but AIDS is one of the fastest mutating drugs and makes it very difficult for them to come up with a drug today that's a vaccine that will work for what will exist in three months. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we have spoken uh, uh, a little bit critical about the uh, pharma companies. Uh, is there, and you know, you've done, uh, obviously written a book about it. Uh, is there one thing that uh, you admire about the pharma companies or, you know, one thing that you think they are doing well? Is there something that uh, you look at? Oh, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. Is there something like that? Oh, there's a lot of things I actually admire about the pharma company. So what happens is, you know, here I have, I've done this book of the history of the American drug industry. And it's good and bad in the sense that there are some fantastic stories of people who really are looking for cures uh, and they're working inside laboratories and they're selfless scientists. I mean, Jonas Salk um, and Sabin, who was a French, uh, who came up with the polio vaccine, which helped save the world. The people came up with penicillin, the whole advent of antibiotics. There are a whole series of drugs that I really think the people who developed them were sincere about making the world a better place. It often happens at the top of the companies. I talk about Roy Vagelos, who was the American Greek uh, CEO of, uh, for many years of Merck and gave away a drug to developing countries for river blindness uh, when he thought that they shouldn't be charging for it. So there are good stories. The problem is that as a journalist, I cover both sides. So I cover the good things that happen inside the laboratory and then the bad things that happen not in the laboratory, but when the drugs go over to the marketing department. So when they get to marketing or sometimes to the corporate board, they are over-marketed. And if it's a drug that is potentially addictive, as with a controlled substance like opioid painkillers, it became a, a lethal crisis. And sometimes, Ryan, drug companies in the past, uh, like the first contraceptive pill that was put out, or the first hormone replacement therapy for menopause in the 1960s uh, that were put out, when those companies started to get reports about women having endometrial cancer or developing uh, blood clots, they did not report them to the Food and Drug Administration. They did not independently investigate it. They hid the information in the back room, hoping that it was just an anomaly and would go away. It turned out that it took 15 years before the investigations were done that showed those drugs had incredibly high levels of estrogen, so high that they were causing unwarranted cancer cases and blood clots in, in tens of thousands of women. So when companies hide the bad effects, even Merck did it on Vioxx, which was a painkiller that was supposed to help for arthritis, and they hid the, the results that were coming in, pouring in about bad effects for heart. Companies then tarnish themselves. So the history of the drug company, and I think it's that way in almost every country, is one of great stories, innovation, cures, and good drugs balanced against um, bad side effects that are hidden sometimes by the company for too long or a greed in over-marketing the drug. So that's the that's the balanced story. And, and people often remember the bad stories instead of the good ones, unfortunately. The... Um, finally, uh, I wanted to, on a separate thread, um, you have a reputation of being an excellent uh, investigative journalist. Um, you've written multiple books. And uh, uh, do you have any suggestions for, uh, I don't know, doing, uh, like, maybe the steps that you follow to uh, really delve deep into a topic, um, uh, you know, being very unbiased and not looking for 
the things that you really want to, uh, you know, you really want to look at and maybe looking at the whole situation, like objectively, uh, do you have any suggestions, uh, the things that maybe you follow? Yes. I mean, I, I'm very, very lucky that I'm able to find a publisher in the United States. I've had only, you know, uh, three over a period of years for 13 books. Um, and those publishers have allowed me to take a subject like this last one, the drug industry, and go ahead and write the book without knowing the conclusions that I'm coming to. Now, that's critical because often a publisher wants the writer or the author or the journalist. Same thing with magazine editors. Magazine editor wants to know what your conclusion is about the piece you're going to write. But you can't know that until you do your reporting. So there's a catch-22 here. If, if a person, a reporter who's writing a magazine article says, by the way, I want to write about this family and see if they're, they're doing something illegal on taxes, and my conclusion is that they are, so the editor says, that's fantastic. That'll be a page one story. Let's run that. But you don't know that unless you've already done your reporting. So you need to get the assignment, whether it's a book, whether it's an article, whether you're doing something for a podcast, uh, whether you're doing something for an online journal, and not have your mind made up. If you have your mind made up, look, you can go out and then just pick the the studies and information that supported your conclusion. That's not really doing journalism. That's just building a case for yourself. So the the you know the the great thing about doing this is you're going out with an open mind. You're you're following the evidence. You do become a victim of your sources in the sense that the world, the view of your world, is formed by the people who talk to you. So you know, I asked to talk to a lot of people who wouldn't interview. You know, the ones who interview with me then recommend somebody else to interview. I seek documents and files from the U.S. government for an application called Freedom of Information. I seek files from different families or drug companies. Sometimes I get access to them. Sometimes I don't. So you don't, as a reporter, get everything you want. You get as much as you can. And then you tell the story based upon credible information. You cite your information, as I do in the back of the book. As you know, I cite 200 pages of what my sources are. So if somebody has a question about a conclusion I've reached, they can go to the underlying document for themselves, see it. And if they want to debate that with me, that's fine. But I think as a journalist, you're responsible for gathering the information, doing the interviews, drawing your conclusions that you view are correct for the historical record, and then telling people what the basis of that conclusion is. It's not always sensational. You don't always have a story that is going to turn the world upside down, but you're you're doing good, steady, honest journalism. And let me tell you, I think there's less and less of that because people's attention spans are shorter. They want a headline right away, right? The uh, uh, I go on to the website, the Daily Mail, the British uh, tabloid. The Daily Mail is supreme at superb at doing headlines. You know, they all catch your attention. It's fantastic. The story may not be as great, but the headline is great. Um, so you know, uh, it, real journalism is a bit more difficult than that. Um, on that note, uh, Gerald, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it was uh, really, uh, it was really wonderful having you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I l- really like the fact that you do such an eclectic range of interviews. You cover people in so many different fields and topics and that. And it sort of gives your listeners just an idea of what people do on, on different fields. And I think that's fantastic. So, so keep it going because it's really a productive podcast.